and welcome to episode 1128 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh, writer for The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, we're in a weird position today of having to talk about game two, which is not an imposition. There was so much to talk about in game two, except the weird thing is that we've already talked about game two for about four and a half hours. (laughs) You and I on a Patreon stream that we did exclusively for some of our Patreon supporters during the game on Wednesday night. So we talked throughout the entire thing from first pitch to last. So we have covered it very thoroughly. And yet most of the people listening to this podcast have not heard any of that, cannot hear any of that. So we have to talk about it again in in some form. And I guess now we have a little more perspective on it. So we can talk about it in a different way than we did in the moment, which was mostly what is happening? How is this still (laughs) going are we still talking is this game still happening so we're going to talk about that for a little bit and i guess where the series stands and then we have more managerial news joe girardi fits into this trend seemingly of successful managers getting dismissed regardless and and we have some emails to get to so first game two thoughts i guess and you wrote about a, a couple aspects of that game today which i'd be curious to hear you talk about but the upshot is that This is one of the craziest games that any of us can remember seeing, certainly at such a high-profile moment, and the baseball gauge has a stat for this. This was of 655 World Series games played to date. This game had the 15th greatest total change in win expectancy, essentially. So one team goes ahead, its win expectancy increases, another team retakes the lead or comes back and that team's win expectancy increases so the total win expectancy change ranked 15th of all 655 world series games that is pretty good and that's what it felt like at the time and it felt even crazier i think because most of that stuff most of the crazy wildness happened in a pretty compressed time frame or at least innings wise like Up until the eighth inning or so, we weren't thinking of this as a wacky, wild, all-time game. And then everything happened between basically the eighth and the eleventh. I kind of already knew from having like live blogged during baseball games that it's just a different experience when you are actively doing something during the game that isn't just watching. So you know, we were we were talking you and me and some guests throughout the game, and I think as a consequence of that, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about what was happening bigger than just each moment that was yeah, going by. Exactly, so I had right. trouble thinking of of the big picture of. It. So I knew that it was a wild game, but maybe it's it's my own fault for it not occurring to me while we were talking. But it was only after the fact that I started thinking, OK, am I going to write about this? How am I going to write about this? That it dawned on me like, oh, that was insane. That was yeah. an insane <laughs> baseball game. It was really an yeah. insane three innings, I guess. Yeah. And I still don't know how Cody Bellinger didn't hit a home run. This <laughs> should have been over. It was I over know. in the ninth. Everyone knows it was over. I know that was that was really crazy. We didn't. I did a draft of Michael Bauman of our favorite moments from this game, and that didn't even make the list because there were so many. But you're right. That swing, I mean, every swing was a home run there for a while, and some swings that didn't really look like home runs. And like the Altuve home run in particular, I think, was maybe the least home run looking. I don't know. There were some there that barely scraped over the fence and maybe wouldn't have if it had been a normal temperature for a World Series game. So Yeah, that's just off the bat. I mean, I don't know if it was the camera work or just the fact that it was deceptively off the end of the bat, but that really looked like a a home run. But there was just so much to this game, and I had that same feeling. Maybe it was because we were talking continuously for so long and trying to entertain people and looking at the chat window and taking listeners' questions and trying to figure out the technical difficulties, and you were (laughs) starving and hungry for chicken tenders. Let me say that even (laughs) though I was set back, by about an hour or an hour and a half that only made the chicken tenders even better just smelling them as they warmed up in the oven (laughs) for about seven and a half minutes it was the light of my evening it was a great (laughs) baseball game but nothing topped the chicken tenders they were even better than they've ever been before i'm happy to hear that yeah i that's the takeaway for for most people from that night is that your chicken tenders were delicious and yeah i i didn't realize i think until it was over either and 
there were just so many incredible moments and comebacks and some of them were the most improbable players involved. Charlie Culberson, for instance, hitting his home run, first home run of, of the season, right? And then also the, the stars. All the stars were hitting home runs. And it was you know Jack Peterson hitting his first home run since July or whatever it was. But it was also Altuve. And it was Correa and Seager trading home runs. And it was Springer hitting a home run. And you wrote about the, the Springer home run. What did you write about the Springer home run? <laughs> I don't know how Cody Bellinger didn't hit a home run. Dallas Keuchel is in the New York Times saying, I 100% believe the ball is juiced. And he Uh said that presumably before yesterday's game. I don't think he was giving a quote about the juiced ball after that game. Although he could have because eight players hit home runs in the game. And Cody Bellinger wasn't one of them. He wasn't one of them. How did that not get out of the park? Sam was right. Sam was right when he said he hasn't thought a ball was a home run and it hasn't been a home run in years. And I I mean, that's like a statement of, of the home run spike. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I get. There's there's extra meaning behind it. But yeah, no, everything was perfect. That was a walk-off. I think that it was a walk-off home run. I don't know what happened to your stream. I think the game ended. I think the Dodgers are up 2-0 to know, to know in the series. George Springer hit a home run. He hit a home run off Brandon McCarthy in the 11th inning. Probably the biggest home run in Astros history. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important to win your first World Series game. Now it took several home runs to get there. Yes. But it wasn't much. It was just a quick little Instagrafts thing. But uh, what was fun about the Springer bet against Brandon McCarthy is that after McCarthy threw two fastballs that missed, so he fell behind two and out of Springer, he threw two sliders. I don't think either one of them was the... Well, let me say this. I know for a fact neither one of them was the slider that McCarthy wanted to throw to George Springer because you would never want to throw sliders over the middle of the plate in the strike zone. That's a bad area for a slider. But mm-hmm. he threw not one of them, but he threw two of them in almost the exact same place. Uh, if you look at game day, there was basically the same slider. The velocities were just a little bit off, but location was almost identical. And baseball doesn't give you that many opportunities to have back-to-back like identical pitches. Yeah. Especially when you get to, uh, because neither one of them happened in a two strike count, you didn't have to worry about someone going into their like specific two strike approach. So it was a, it was just a fun little opportunity to look at, well, what happened? Why did Springer maybe foul off the first one? And why did he hit the second one for a home run? Was there anything different uh, between the two swings? And it's not, it's not super easy to analyze these things. And it's also, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not super meaningful or insightful. But what was interesting is, you know, you, you can picture a George Springer swing and he'd, it's a powerful swing. It's been a powerful swing ever since he was in the minor leagues. Is one of the most interesting prospects ever. He takes a he takes a mighty hack. Gets he, his shoulders do like a full 180 rotation. And on the first slider, he had a foul ball, and he looked like a classic Springer swing, just wrapped all the way around his body. And then all of a sudden, on the second swing, he didn't really his his shoulders didn't rotate like that. He kind of cut himself off. He kind of cut down on his swing. He 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 looked like there's there's more mechanical stuff that goes into it, but he just looked like the guy who was actually just trying to get the bat on the ball and hit it to center field, which he did, mm-hmm. but 410 feet. He uh, <laughs> right. George Springer cut down on a swing and hit a home run. That's the mm-hmm. kind of era that we live in now. But I don't know. I thought it was kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's funny. At the time when we were watching the game and talking during the game, we didn't really give a second thought to Rich Hill being taken out of the game when he was. I mean, we noted it. Hey, there's a different pitcher now. But we had talked in the first inning, maybe it was, about how long we thought Hill would go in this game. And we were initially thinking, well, maybe he could get through five and and we actually said four. And I mean, that just seemed like the target. And I think there's a lot of kind of post hoc analysis here about how Roberts should have left him in longer. And I mean, his line was good. I don't know if he was actually as good as maybe the box score says he was. But regardless, I mean, this is what the Dodgers have done all season. They've had quick hooks with all their starters, especially Rich Hill. And their bullpen, of course, had been dominant in October. Maybe that was somewhat deceptive, but it had been very effective. And we know that they don't like to let guys in to face hitters multiple times in the game. And I mean, ultimately, they got to Kenley Jansen with a lead and Almost every time, literally every time that the Dodgers had been winning after eight innings this year, they had won. And that's exactly the situation you want to be in. If you want to criticize Roberts, maybe you could criticize 
how quickly he cycled through relievers between pulling Hill and inserting Jansen. Maybe, and certainly in retrospect, you'd rather not have had Josh Fields in so soon or Brandon McCarthy in so soon. So maybe you could say he should have stuck with a intermediate reliever longer than he did. But the initial decision to pull Hill after four, I, I really don't have a problem with. Yeah, it was kind of funny because I think that when you were done answering the prompt about how thought how long you thought Rich Hill would last in the game, early in the game, I think that Hill was already out of the game. So he, <laughs> he did his four innings and what, 60 pitches. But at the end of the day, he got through the order two times. Uh, the order, order was turning over. It was going to be Springer due up in the fifth. This right. is why you have like Kinta. all of the, the good, powerful yeah. ready's coming up. Yeah, exactly. This is why you have Maeda in the bullpen in the first place is you want to you want to give Maeda about two innings. And Hill knew full well that he was not going to be pushed. There's an off day tomorrow, which is today. So it, you don't have to worry too much about overtaxing your bullpen. And it's just a second guessing that I don't understand, uh, given everything that happened after the fact. I'm already predisposed to not really like managerial second guessing in the first place. But, you know, sometimes there are things like Joe Girardi not challenging a ball that didn't hit Lonnie Chisholm. So that you can second guess. But in this case, just like you said, the Dodgers had Kevin Jansen on the mound and they had a two run lead. Like that's that's it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. sometimes your best players just aren't there. And if you you have to remember the Astros also then handed a two run lead to their outstanding closer and he blew the save. It was just a weird night of baseball. And I think that the last thing that I would have interest in talking about is like a managerial decision between the fourth and fifth innings. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, there's so much to talk about with this game and so many individual heroics and just outright weirdness and randomness that this is the last game that we need to belabor managerial decisions i think there's just way way too much else to get into here so obviously this was a game full of very just gifable and memorable reaction faces and (laughs) you know puig throwing his glove and seager just holding his glove in a very phallic manner while he screamed after his home run or correa's bat flip or puig's opposite of a bat flip where he just gently lay the bat (laughs) down and his constant licking of the bat a lot of airtime for tongues in this game I mean there was just a lot of personality and of course Culberson running around the bases with his arms up as as if he had just tied the game or won the game he hadn't actually what was that about I'm sorry that was weird I mean he denied that he didn't know what the score was and I mean (laughs) look I you know I guess I would be excited if I were Charlie Culberson hitting that home run hitting any home run for that matter but yeah, I mean, Dallas Keuchel was mad about it, right? He he said, I don't know, that Culberson looked like he was over-celebrating, I guess. But, I mean, it was such a crazy game by that point and such an unlikely homer. And Culberson's last couple of weeks have been crazy. And I think he said his family was there. He was pointing at them or something. So, whatever. I mean, it it looked like he thought... The score was different, maybe, but whatever. It, it doesn't doesn't bother me if he celebrated a little more than the moment merited. But I think that, you know, the better reaction was from Yasiel Puig, who had a really nice quote about Carlos Correa's bat flip, and he's an opposing player. He's the very type of player who, you know, could have grounds to take offense at someone like Correa flipping a bat and celebrating, but instead Puig said that this was great, that he was happy to see him happy and that he had every right to be excited. And Kenley Jensen said something similar, like, if you hit a home run off me, you deserve to celebrate. You got me. So good for you. And so I I think that was one of the takeaways from this game is just how much fun emotion can be on a baseball field. And it looked like everyone was really into it. Am I misremembering or is Hunter Strickland the last baseball player to actually get upset, like actually, like legitimately upset about like an emotional display in the playoffs? I know like Heichel yeah. said what he said right. about Culberson, but that's fine. That that wasn't like an aggressive quote on his part. He just said mm-hmm. Culberson looked like he won the World Series. Whatever. Yes, that's, that's fine. Yeah, that's true. It's accurate. But <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it happens during the regular season all the time, mm-hmm. of course. But yeah, Strickland, a recent postseason example. But I mean, this was just a, a great showcase for some of the youngest and most exciting stars. Correa, Seager, Bregman, not to mention Altuve homering, Puig homering, and yet there 
was also the unexpected and Marwin Gonzalez and Charlie Culbertson and and you you wrote about Marwin Gonzalez too, right? And you called it the the Rajai Davis moment. Yeah, so. and uh, I had forgotten. I love going back to the Rajai Davis clip and just kind of wanting to forget about everything that happened after it. Because mm-hmm. as far as I wanted to be concerned, the season ended with that home run. It was kind of an annoying tie game after the <laughs> fact. But I had forgotten that as Rajai Davis started rounding the bases. He stuck his tongue all the way out, and that was showcased in glorious Fox slow motion as he looked <laughs> yeah. at his own dugout. So kind of a uh, Yasiel Puig predecessor by mm-hmm. a year, a little under a year. But yeah, I've I've tried hard to re- recall the Davis home run because it would be easy to lose given that the Indians lost the game two innings later. There was a lot yeah. that happened, and it would be easy to forget about what that home run meant. But I just can't allow myself to forget that it was maybe the most improbable high leverage event I've ever seen on a mm-hmm. baseball field to do that to Chapman. And, and the image that I have in my head is Davis choked like three quarters of the way up the bat when he hit the ball. <laughs> Remain unclear quite how he did that. But Marwin Gonzalez as well just choked way up, way up on the bat. And he's... Mm-hmm. He was already choking up a little bit uh, in the playoffs. I don't know if he's been doing it all season, but choked up to hit Kenley Jansen. Uh, he hit an Owen. I, did, I didn't notice when we were doing our live podcast stream, but it was an Owen 2 pitch that he hit. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't paying close enough attention. I kind of figured the game was already over because, you know, yeah. Kenley Jansen was pitching, but right. Jansen got ahead. Owen 2 threw a cutter pretty much middle middle and Gonzalez hit it out to center field, which he doesn't do a lot of. And I know there was some talk after the game and, and Jansen said himself that he he screwed up. He wanted the pitch to be somewhere else. But one of the most amazing things about Kenley Jansen is his stuff is so good. He doesn't even when he makes a mistake, it's good. You know, mm-hmm. like he for several years in a row, he's had one of baseball's highest rates of swinging strikes on pitches thrown just right down the middle. Mm-hmm. This year when he got ahead 0-2 in the regular season, which he did 98 times, he didn't allow a single home run. He struck out 60 of those batters. And I couldn't tell if this was as crazy when I found it as it seems like it is, but Kenley Jansen this year had a higher swinging strike rate on pitches right down the middle than he had on all pitches in the strike zone. Huh. I think that's crazy. Maybe that's yeah. not as crazy as it seems, but it seems crazy. Yeah, it definitely seems unusual. Like, it's almost as if people aren't expecting him to make a mistake and give them a hittable pitch, so they're so taken aback by it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, we were actually talking during the game about just how bored Kenley Jansen looks while he's <laughs> shutting teams down. We were describing it as like just stuck in your office on the last few minutes before you leave on a Monday or something just because it's so routine and typically it is and usually the workday is over when Kenley Jansen is in the game but not this time and there was just so much other ancillary weirdness surrounding the actual on-field stuff whether it was Justin Verlander emerging from the clubhouse with his hairy, hairy arms on display (laughs) just to yell at his teammates, exhort them to win the game, presumably. And there was a nearby building on fire, and there was someone in the stands jumping into the dugout and getting thrown out. And then, of course, there were the crazy deflections in this game (laughs) with the, the hat brim and... Laz Diaz, the umpire, getting nailed on a pickoff throw. So I mean, every time one of those things happened, it was like, oh, okay, we are, we are really seeing something here. I don't know what, but this is special. I'm really pleased that... So I don't know if the run is going to score on the wild pickoff that hit Laz Diaz in the leg, but I'm really pleased that that was offset by the bill of Chris Taylor's hat because it would have left a weird taste in my mouth if it felt like one of the sides got super lucky. Mm -hmm. And I know that that doesn't really make sense because teams get lucky in games all the time, but it seemed like the the ball that hit Taylor's hat probably... Well, Carson Sestouli actually wrote a post about this. I think he estimated that it, (laughs) it cost the Astros most of one run and then you figure that uh that wild pickoff might have cost the astros much of one run depending on exactly where that ball was going to go that was a very wild pickoff so who knows if yes. that could have been two bases and and a run but in any case uh i i was happy to see the luck even out and uh, on a slightly separate, well, actually, no, forget the separate note, because I don't think that we mentioned at any point last night that there was a fire. There was like a fire next door, yeah. but I had the broadcast muted just like right, you so did. did I. Mm-hmm. So did you did you know? Was it ever no. on the TV? It may have been on the TV, but I, I I wasn't really listening to the TV. And so, no, I was not aware that there was a fire going on while we were watching the game. Yep. No further point. There was a fire. <laughs> Something was burning. Yep, sure. Yeah, I I keep almost having to remind myself that like the series is 
just getting started almost like this was not the finale it feels like this should have been the finale like when game seven was wild and crazy last year that was it that ended the series and the season and that felt appropriate and now we're just there are two games here and it's tied 1-1 and obviously this was a huge win for the Astros and being down two nothing would have been a bad spot to be in but they split which is what they probably would have hoped for or expected coming into two games in LA and now they go back and really it's any one series and hopefully somehow these next games can compete with Clayton Kershaw throwing a gem in the World Series and then whatever that was on Wednesday night so I don't know how you follow up those those two games but it's a tall order. Well, okay. So at this point, I think that it would be fun for you and I to draft the best moments from your draft of the best moments from game two. So we can do this. Uh, So you might remember uh, Cameron Mabin tweeted to the effect if he won everyone in America a taco because Cameron Mabin stole a base. I don't know if anyone's noticed. I haven't heard it mentioned, but no one's really stolen any bases in these playoffs. It just hasn't been part of it. And this is kind of what you'd expect because everyone is hitting home runs and and only home runs so there's not really many stolen base opportunities in the first place but Mm -hmm. just to put this in perspective so far in the playoffs there have been 18 stolen bases Uh, i can remember half of one of them so uh, (laughs) they clearly have not been memorable steals javier baez is the only player in the playoffs with more than one stolen base I mm-hmm. also, again, have zero recollection of that. But I do have conveniently some numbers going back in the wildcard era, so starting in 1995, and the fewest stolen bases in any playoffs previous to this year over those, I guess, 22 years would be 24. Mm-hmm. So there were 24 steals in 2006, and in the 2006 playoffs, there were fewer games than they have already been played in these playoffs. So uh, clearly, these playoffs are well behind. Last year, there were 41 steals. The year before, there were 46. Not too surprising because the Royals were in those playoffs. And last year, I don't know, did the Indians steal a bunch? Feels like the Indians might have stolen a bunch. So yeah. this year has played two fewer games than playoffs last year. That's two fewer games. And there have been mm-hmm. 23 fewer stolen bases. Hmm. So, And I prepared a very haphazard stat segment, but it's there. It touches on this theme and what we were talking about last night. I could get into it now, but I'll wait. I'll hold off on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you mentioned the the Dallas Keuchel quote. He said, I think the balls are juiced 100%. Major League Baseball wants to put on a show. So do you think that it was a good show, if that's what they want? I mean, obviously that game was a good show, but eight home runs is a record in a World Series game. And I've seen some suggestions to the effect of this is too much. It feels like too all or nothing. Home runs are cheapened. We've probably touched on this in past podcasts, but that was a very, very visible example of what baseball looks like in 2017 at the extremes. So did that take it too far for you or did you like it? Because, I mean, the the suspense, I think, of if you're one run down, it feels like anyone, including Charlie Culberson, can hit a home run off of anyone at any time. And granted, you don't necessarily have to hit the ball all that well to get it out, particularly when it's warm. But I think there was some narrative benefit to that, too. Yeah, I'm at a point where I don't know if I'm just not adapted to it or what. I I enjoyed last night's game quite a bit, uh, aside from the responsibility of having to talk for four and a half hours (laughs) through it. Yeah, but I I mean, the way that the game has been talked about, it's one of I know there's recency bias and whatnot, but it seems like one of the most exciting and memorable playoff baseball games in recent history. Uh, People have compared it to last year's game seven or to game six from 2011, which is an all timer. So I don't know if this one's going to stand up to that because there's still more of the series to be played. But I agree with you. I know that something is missing in that you've missed some of that strategy and, and string hits together and sort of building the drama. But the the counter to that is that when home runs are everywhere, when Charlie Culberson is hitting home runs, although parentheses, Cody Bellinger not, still don't get it. <laughs> yeah. It means that even though you don't have like the the mounting drama of of runners reaching base, you have the just constant anxiety of the next swing could cause a yeah. ball to leave the yard. And I know that's always been there because no one's ever been like incapable of hitting a home run, but it just means that yeah, the game can swing at any second. And that's I know it's different, but you know, there's there's a difference between something being different and something being worse. 
person. I think that humans are ill-equipped to examine which is happening when it's actually happening. I think you need mm -hmm. some time to pass, and the home run spike is still really new. Right. And what was it? The Dodgers had more runs scored than hits in this game, and <laughs> they didn't even have a, a non-home run hit until the 10th, was it? Until Marvin Gonzalez? or I think it was Kike, right? Oh, right. Until Kike. Yeah. Marvin Gonzalez, not on the Dodgers. Yeah. So... <laughs> I think uh, that that was weird. Weird box score, weird line, but this is what baseball looks like now. So I guess we can move on a bit by this point. Hopefully everyone listening has digested this game and read many articles about it and relived it several times. So we will continue to do so as this World Series goes on. But a few thoughts just before we get to some emails about Joe Girardi's dismissal. His contract was up. And the Yankees announced that he would not be coming back for 2018. According to Girardi, this was not his decision. The Yankees made this call. They acknowledged that they made this call. And now we have a trend, right? We have three examples of something similar. This is, well, A, it's the first time that a manager has been fired after taking a team to a championship series since, I believe, 2006 when Ken Maka was uh, let go after the A's made it there. And this is the first time ever that three playoff teams have changed managers for any reason in the span of one winter. So this is definitely unusual. And so the question is always, is it meaningful? Does it mean something significant or is it a coincidence? And I think that, I mean... Hold on, can I interrupt? Yeah, sure. So Ben, why do you think that this is? I saw that you wrote an article about this on The Ringer <laughs> and I would be very interested to hear your insight. Oh, thanks for teeing me up there. Yeah, I, I think... Obviously, there's been a, a backlash to all of these firings, particularly Baker and Girardi. And I'm saying firings here, and, and they're not what Farrell was, I guess, but Baker's contract was up and Girardi's contract was up. It's, you know, renewal, not renewal, not bringing back, letting go. They're changing managers. And I think, obviously, because these teams all won 90-something games and got to the playoffs, the immediate reaction is this doesn't make sense. And... None of these managers really had, I mean, maybe the Girardi ALDS Game 2 non-challenge on the hit-by-pitch is certainly a, a glaring and memorable mistake, but it didn't end up knocking the Yankees out of the playoffs, so you kind of got the sense that that was going to be forgotten to a certain extent. And sure, there were controversial, feral, and dusty decisions, but, you know, nothing, I think, that rose to the level of Grady Little or even Buck Showalter. And Given all the success that these teams had, I think certainly with, with Dusty and Girardi, there was a lot of consternation about this. And I mean, obviously, these guys, I would think, were not fired because their teams didn't do well enough. I mean, I think there has to be more to the story. Girardi just has never had a losing season with the Yankees, which is saying something because there have been three seasons when the Yankees were outscored during his tenure. And he had some pretty lousy rosters of old, aging, expensive people who weren't worth their salaries. And so he managed to bridge that gap, kind of that rebuilding time, lean years, I guess, relatively lean by Yankee standards, and got them to this new hopeful era of a new, young, more cost-effective, charismatic core. And now he is being let go right as that core is blossoming. So Seems unfair. He's won a World Series with the team. He's made six postseason appearances with the team. He's had the occasional flare-up, and his players don't seem to love him. He's not cuddly and warm, and reporters don't necessarily love him, but he's done just fine. It's not Matt Williams. It's not Bobby Valentine. It's a big media market, lots of scrutiny, and for the most part, the Yankees have been pretty drama-free. So on the surface, it doesn't make sense. And so I just have to think that like all managerial moves, it's difficult to evaluate from afar. And that's very unsatisfying to say. But I always think it's silly, really, that we vote for manager of the year awards because there's just so much of what a manager does that is unseen. And most of the conversations they have with players, we're not privy to. And their relationship with ownership and GMs in the front office, we barely see we get glimpses of maybe we hear about secondhand but we don't really see it we're not there and that is so important particularly in this era when the front office sort of reigns supreme and i think it's 
generally acknowledge that good teams become good teams, not necessarily because the manager is good, although that certainly helps, but because of drafting and player development and transactions. And ultimately, I think the front office's priority is having a manager who works well with the front office and takes instructions and has civil conversations and works well with them, communicates well with them. And so I have to assume that in each of these cases, there was some breakdown in that communication. And that doesn't mean it's necessarily the outgoing manager's fault. For all we know, the GM, the front office, the ownership was more responsible. But if that happens, if there is some kind of tension there, it's not the GM who's going to move on and the manager who stays, unless it's Mike Sosha and the Angels, it is going to be the manager who who moves. And so I, I don't know what to make of it other than to say purely on a wins and losses and postseason appearances basis, it's crazy that the Yankees don't want Joe Girardi back. But the very fact that it's so crazy on the surface makes me think that there's just a lot under the surface that we have no idea about. And the thing that each of these announcements has in common is that none of the teams has said really a thing about why they made these decisions. Dave Dombrowski had a strange, kind of awkward, evasive press conference where he just straight up said, I, I'm not going to tell you what happened. I, I'm not going to share any facts. I'm not going to get into the details of why we made this decision. And then Mike Rizzo said something vague about how well we want to win a World Series. And, you know, I guess the implication there is that Dusty has not won a World Series, but that in itself, I can't imagine, is the sole basis for that decision to change managers. And with Girardi, Cashman put out a statement and said, oh, there was careful and thorough consideration, but did not get into what the consideration was of or what the result of that consideration was. So I don't want to just kind of defer to authority here, but ultimately we don't know why these guys were let go. And presumably there were reasons other than they didn't win a World Series this year. So to me, I think there had to be more to it. And maybe ultimately, if that relationship has broken down in some way you do need a new voice even if it's not really fair to the outgoing manager you uh you made the the good point that when if you have a difference of opinion or a perception between the manager and the general manager it's going to be the manager almost always who who moves on or at least has to i don't know kowtow to the executive mm-hmm. because it just it's a lot more difficult to replace an entire front office than it is to replace a manager with a manager you just get a new coaching staff they're out there there mm-hmm. you can find one at any neighborhood bar there's probably a man hanging out with four or five other men who can fulfill their baseball responsibilities but we've spent or thinks they can yeah we're we're definitely who thinks they can and some of those people (laughs) have gotten jobs as well but Mm -hmm. we have spent so much time over the past few years talking about conceding that we don't really know how to evaluate managers but maybe jeff passner wrote about this too just on thursday talking about how managers have just lost so much power over the past yep. several decades because they used to be the focal point of entire organizations. It would be right. the manager who was making roster decisions and saying, I want this guy or or actually going to get that guy. I don't know who actually would sign off on these things in like 1974, but the manager was, was the guy. And we know that has eroded the power hierarchy within baseball organizations is extremely top heavy now, kind of like America. But One of the points I guess we maybe haven't spent enough time discussing is who would want to be a manager then? (laughs) I mean, I know there's a seven-figure contract in it for you and you get to be around a baseball team. So obviously there are a lot of perks, but I mean, if you give even half of a crap about your job, then you just live with this constant tumult of stress and anxiety and being separated from your family and you're having to manage all these young jerks who just have like never failed. So they don't know how to be humble a lot of the time and you just get blamed for everything 90% of the time for reasons that people don't understand what they're even talking about they just think they're just you're being second guessed you're being second guessed by the media and if you do something well nobody knows because you'd think Dusty Baker John Farrell Joe Girardi did some things well their teams made the playoffs they won their divisions or at least two of them won their divisions the other one lost to one of the other ones but those teams all very good you would think those managers would be safe but we don't know and now they're out of their jobs so what do you who would want this for themselves yeah it's never been an easy job and now there's less power that goes with it although more money so again there are perks but yeah i mean i i think it's just it's simplistic i think to say that well 
the manager of the team that won the most games or exceeded expectations by the most had to have been the best manager, which is essentially what we do with the Manager of the Year award every year. Who knows, right? I mean, probably they were a good manager, but were they actually the best manager? I don't know. And Joe Girardi, by the way, never won one with the Yankees, maybe because the Yankees are expected to do well. And so when they do well, like, you're not going to win Manager of the Year award for having, like, an 85-win team that wasn't expected to be good and got outscored, but somehow won 85 games anyway, which is what Joe Girardi did. I don't know, maybe he'll win this year. He won that award the previous year when he was fired by the Marlins in 2006. So I think just as it's too simplistic to say, well, the best team or most surprising team has the best manager, it's also too simplistic probably to say, well, this winning team has the perfect manager for that team or that a losing team had a bad manager. I mean, it's just, you know, it's very much results-based analysis because that's all we have. We can't necessarily see the process except for what goes on in the three hours or so of the game, and often that is not as important as the other stuff that's going on. So (laughs) we're just working with very incomplete information, basically, is is what I'm saying. And, you know, maybe... I mean, the risk, I guess, is that it could be a whole lot worse. Like, we don't know what was going on behind the scenes. For all we know, Joe Durati wasn't returning Brian Cashman's texts or something. I don't know what the state of their relationship was, but it could be a lot worse, right? And maybe you can always be looking for greener pastures and saying, I'll find the perfect manager and we'll work in harmony together forever. But that doesn't always happen. And sometimes the person is not as well-suited to you and to the team as as he might appear in an interview and things, you know, with the scrutiny and the pressure and the second guessing and how quickly games move, I think those relationships can probably sour more quickly than you imagine. And you just never necessarily know how a manager is going to gel with a certain group of players and front office people. So you do leave yourself open to risk. Like the Yankees knew that they could win postseason series and win a world series with Joe Girardi. And now they'll be hiring someone who has not proven that he can do that in this market with this team. And every now and then there's a Matt Williams or a Bobby Valentine situation, and that's the risk and the downside. So that's what you leave yourself open to by going away from the familiar person. But again, I mean, it's just, it's so cyclical. I mean, we've seen kind of the out with the old, in with the new with Brad Osmus and Walt Weiss and Matt Williams and all these people. And then the new went out and the old came back in again, whether it was Garden Hire now or, or Baker or Bud Black. And now some of the olds are out again and the news are in. So, I mean, it's just back and forth and stathead and old school and young and old and disciplinarian and players manager. And it has always been this way and it will always probably be this way. I'd like to address a point you brought up early, uh, just several minutes ago. You said that you could never win a manager of the year award with just like a 500 team or a team that overachieves but isn't successful. I had a hunch, so I didn't remember for sure. But back in 2003, the Royals were surprisingly not terrible. And Tony Pena actually did win the manager of the year award that year with the Royals going 83 and 79. But another fun fact, this is one of those things that's lost to recent history that I had completely forgotten about. I don't know if you had, uh, but Joe Girardi has won a manager of the year award. Uh, he yep. yeah, won, it in, right? won it in 2006. Yeah. Help me piece this together. I've forgotten. I forgot about that entirely. Joe Girardi won in 2006. He was uh, the manager of the Florida. It was then the Florida Marlins. Won that award over Willie Randolph, Bruce Bochy, Grady Little, Charlie Manuel, Jerry Naren, Phil Garner. Okay, here's here's the thing. Joe Girardi won the award. Great job, Joe Girardi. 18 of looks like 30 first place votes that year, maybe 32. The Marlins finished in fourth place. Willie Randolph, second place manager of the year. His team finished first. Bruce Bochy, third place manager of the year. His team finished first. That I don't care about. Okay, so maybe I'm forgetting what the circumstances were. But in 2005, the Florida Marlins were managed by Jack McKeon, and they went 83 and 79. And in 2006, Joe Girardi was the manager of the Marlins, and he won the manager of the year award, and they went 78 and 84. They finished in fourth place. In 2005, they finished in third place. It, but what happened to let Joe Girardi win that award? Hmm. Uh, I, they still I t- had Miguel Cabrera. It's not, not like there was the fire sale, but in 2005, let me just confer, let me make sure that Jack McKeon didn't also win the award somehow in 
2005? And the answer is no. No, not only not only did Jack McKeon not win the NL Manager of the Year award in 2005 when the Marlins were better than they were in 2006, he didn't even get he didn't get a single vote. Bobby Cox won the award, but then the the seven other managers who even showed up on ballots were Tony Larusa, Phil Garner, Frank Robinson, Ned Yost, Charlie Manuel, Bruce Bochy, and Willie Randolph. Jack McKeon managed the Marlins to a record that was several games better than Joe Girardi in 2006, and he didn't even get a throwaway vote. What <laughs> happened? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's a weird award. I wish it weren't an award, sort of. Maybe it's an award that should be voted on by players or something instead of writers who are kind of just guessing about who deserves it and who doesn't. By the way, in my article, I embedded a, a Buster-only tweet about how teams want A.J. Hinch now mm-hmm. as as a manager because he is stat-savvy and media-friendly and an easygoing guy. And then right after I published that article, a report surfaced on TMZ that he was in a bar fight, basically, or <laughs> some kind of bar altercation mm-hmm. after game one of the World Series, which, you know, maybe not the most reliable source, except that one of my colleagues at the ringer called the police department in Pasadena, and the lieutenant he spoke to confirmed every detail that was in that report. So maybe not the most easygoing guy. I don't know. But anyway, that's uh, that's kind of the risk is that Maybe a a manager looks like a great candidate or perfect replacement, and then maybe maybe it's not all that he's cracked up to be. I don't know. I don't know, AJ Hinch. (laughs) Anyway, it was just weird timing to have an easygoing guy tweet followed very quickly by a report about cops being called to a bar altercation. Yeah, that was a weird Roto World thing that showed up. Uh, I've (laughs) I've gone back. So let's see. I was talking about the 2006 Marlins. And so one thing that did happen is in the offseason before that, the Marlins traded Carlos Delgado and they traded in that package Josh Beckett, Mike Lowell and Guillermo Mota. And they got Hanley Ramirez in that move and Anibal Sanchez. Uh, they also traded Paula Duca. They traded Luis Castillo. Look, OK, I, I kind of get it. I understand they traded Juan Pierre. I see where you're going. I see where you're going, voters from 2006. And those Marlins were projected to win 71 games. It's not very good. Mm -hmm. And they won 78. But they won 78 games. They won fewer... You can't, you can't let them. This offseason, we're going to have to fill a lot of podcasts, right? Like, there's going, there's not going to be a whole lot of baseball. We're going to talk exclusively to people who voted for the 2006 <laughs> National League Manager of the Year award. And we're going to have to pry some memories because this is, this is nonsense. This is what a nonsense award for Joe Girardi to win, and he didn't win one with the. That's absurd. Maybe you just get a boost for having to work for Jeffrey Loria. It's just automatic <laughs> extra votes. I don't know. All right. Well, we've talked for quite a while already. Did you have a stat segment that you wanted to get to, or do you want to save it? Or I mean, I, I don't want to save it because it belongs in the email episodes. We've answered zero okay. emails. I don't know what we're going to yes. talk about tomorrow. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> question. quick stat segment. This is actually going to be super quick. So it's going to be about home runs. I put no extra effort into this. But yesterday, as we talked about a little during our live, I shouldn't say broadcast, our live talking for a while, <laughs> the Astros and the Dodgers combined to score 13 runs. 10 of which scored on home runs. That's a lot. There were eight different players who hit home runs in the game. That's tied for the most ever in a playoff game. Only one other game has had eight players hit home runs in a game. That was a game between the Cubs and the Cardinals in 2015. Anyway, I just wanted to quickly update where we stand with this year's playoff Guillen number. So we talked about this a little mm-hmm. last night. Guillen number being the percentage of all runs scored that score on home runs. For example, the Dodgers and Astros combined to have 10 runs scored on home runs out of 13 total runs. So the Guillen number for last night's game would be about 77%. So mm-hmm. this year, the league total Guillen number was 43%. 43% of all runs in Major League Baseball during the regular season scored on home runs. That was up from last year's high of 40%, which was up from the previous year's high of 37%. Home runs everywhere. Everybody knows this. So this year in the playoffs, I've got data going back to 1995 and the overall average Guillen number for the regular season. 36%. And in the playoffs, it's 39%. I don't think that's surprising that more runs would score on homers. It's because hits are harder to come by in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this. Anyway, this year's playoff Guillen number. Do you have a guess? And I will give you this information as background. 2014, playoff Guillen number, 33%. 2015, 42%. Last year, 42%. Where do you think this year's playoff Guillen number is? I will say, see, you wrote about this once already this postseason, and Mm -hmm. at the time it was around 50, right, Mm -hmm. I think? So I think it seems like it's gone up since then. 
So I'm going to say 56%. Well, that's too high. It's 51. It's 51%. Okay. It's actually 51.3%. 141 runs have scored this year in the playoffs on home runs out of 275 total runs. So this is, I only have numbers going back to 1995 because I don't really care about playoff stats before the wildcard era. There just weren't that many playoff games. But Gia number through the roof. Officially, we are over the 50% mark. Doesn't mean we're going to end there. There's still between three and five more baseball games to go, but over the 50% mark. And we talked a little bit about this, I think a month or three ago during a podcast about how high the Guillen number could go before I think people started getting turned off. And I don't know. We got, we kind of drew a mental line, I think, around 50%. But I don't know. If this playoff baseball were all baseball, would people watch it? Like, how entertaining would this be if this were all the time? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to say just because the stakes are always so high in the playoffs that you just don't notice things like that. So if every game were like this, yeah, I mean... We're already getting some people complaining or saying that this is not the kind of baseball they like. So I would imagine that those complaints would be a lot louder. And I really, I don't know. I really don't know where the point is where people actually do something about it instead of just saying they prefer a different type of baseball, but actually just stop watching the sport, stop going to the games, stop buying the merchandise. I'm not sure when we get to that point. Maybe we already have for some people, but not enough to notice, I don't think. Yep. Yeah. So I guess we should just do like a few emails. Maybe we yeah, could maybe we should just save emails for tomorrow because <laughs> we we don't have a baseball game to to talk about on tomorrow's show that we've not already talked about. So I've got plenty of emails and I have one more thing to mention which is that Joe Torre admitted in a phone interview on Thursday that that passed ball in Game 5 of the NLDS between the Cubs and the Nats was called incorrectly. We talked about this at the time. We read the rules. We said why we thought that this was not a judgment call in the way that the umpire thought it was. We read the umpire's quote, which said, in my judgment, several times. And (laughs) Joe Torre was on SiriusXM, and he said, the whole rule interpretation, there's rules, and then there's instructions to the umpires. There's separate books. And what Jerry's feeling was that the interference didn't take precedence over the fact that the ball was already past weeders when the contact took place. However, the rule states, and you probably have read the rule, that when contact is made, in other words, when the bat came around and hit the catcher's mask, it's a dead ball. It's a dead ball. And that's the one thing that should have taken precedence. So Torrey agreed with our interpretation and I think most observers' interpretation at the time, once we had all had time to read the rule book, and found that that was the incorrect call and that the ball should have been dead there. And that was... I don't know if it was a pivotal play, perhaps not, but an important play, certainly. And the game continued, Weeders threw the ball away, a run scored, the Nats lost. And Tory said that Dusty Baker could have had the umpires do what he called a rule check using the replay center. So I guess if you think that an umpire has misinterpreted a rule, you can ask for like a replay of that interpretation, essentially. So he did not do that. And I don't know, maybe in its own way, that's like a slightly lesser version of the Joe Girardi not calling for a replay review. But who knows what would have been different, but that at least backs up the angst of Nationals fans who felt like that was an unfair call against them. This is officially the latest in October that the Washington Nationals have ever been delivered good news. Although I (laughs) guess it's also terrible news. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know which one it is. So, you know, what? here's the problem with Joe Torre mentioning that you could do a rules check is that now... So there was this... He says that, uh, that Baker could have called for rules check after a call wasn't made. Because the call was not made that it was a dead ball, right? So I don't know what you would have been able to do under those circumstances. But if Tori says that you could do a rule check after a non-call is made, this just opens the door for any manager to say, check the rules on a balk. You didn't call a balk, but just you should just yeah. see if somebody balked. Or if mm-hmm. there is a balk, do a rule check. Let me know if he actually balked. Just constant, nonstop rule checks about balks. And maybe if you do this often enough, umpires will internalize what a balk actually is. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I don't think any of us has ever mastered that. By the way, while we were talking, A.J. Hinch denied the report that it seemed to have been confirmed. And 
He said there was no altercation. It's a shame I get asked about fabrications and nonsense. So I don't know. It's uh, kind of a he said, he said at this <laughs> point between Hinch and a police representative that my colleague spoke to but anyway who knows what to believe oh but, uh, what are what are the exact words that hinged you he said there was no altercation yes so i don't know if there is an exchange of words does that count as an altercation? look i didn't read the tmz link so i don't know what is reported to have happened but it seemed like maybe it was just people yelling at one another a little bit yeah some people criticizing the astros it said i think the Report said that that caused Hinch to snap and <laughs> that he uh, yelled at the fans or that the incident turned physical and police had to be called. So I really don't, uh, I don't know what the truth was here. But anyway, not particularly important, I suppose. Mostly I'm just glad that AJ Hinch didn't say it was fake news. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah, we've we've done a full episode here. So let's save emails, some playoff related, some not for tomorrow. And we'll just do an email show. And you've already done your stat segment. So you're off the hook unless you feel like coming up with another one. And uh, that'll be that. And by the way, on the subject of Joe Girardi and the 2006 Marlins, there was the fact that the Marlins had the lowest payroll in baseball that year and were in wildcard contention. And then there was an incident earlier in the year or in August when Girardi was nearly fired after arguing with Jeffrey Luria during a game when Luria was heckling a home plate umpire and the umpire warned Girardi about it. And so Girardi then told Loria to shut up basically <laughs> so maybe it was uh, solely because writers approved of Girardi telling Loria to shut up so that's so different from the Loria boost I was postulating earlier you can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild five listeners who have already pledged their support include Max Stanley Williams Cameron Mosley Owen Ricketts Mike Thompson and Robert Livingston. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. As mentioned, Michael Babman and I did a draft of all of our favorite moments from game two. So if you haven't gotten your fill of hearing about that game, go check it out. It's on the Winter MLP Show feed. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via podcast at Fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system. Jeff and I might be able to do another live stream for Patreon supporters during the World Series this weekend. We're trying to figure out our schedules. See, you're under any obligations to blog during or immediately after games, but we had a good time doing it, so... We will send that notification out to Patreon supporters if we're able to do it. And thanks for listening. We will be back soon. Yeah.